people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello and welcome to Twelve Rules for What. This is a podcast about fascism, anti-fascism, and the far right. My name is Alex. Uh, a few things before we begin. If you want to support the show, you can do so on Patreon, patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. It really does help us out with the basic running of the podcast. So if you head over there and check it out, then that would be really appreciated. Uh, secondly, the book club that we were going to do has been delayed by a week or two. Just had some life stuff getting in the way, but look out for that soon. Um, I'll make an announcement in due course. And now on with the show. We're joined by a great guest, Max Kaiser, to discuss the post-war Jewish anti-fascist left in Australia in the 40s and 50s. Um, it's a great discussion, so let's get on with it. Now I'm joined by Max Kaiser, author of Jewish Antifascism and the False Prongs and Settler Colonialism. Hi Max, how are you? Hi Alex, I'm good. Thank you very much for having me on. No worries. Um, so yeah, the, the, I suppose this is episode is going to be one of our more, I suppose, niche uh, topics, but I think a really useful one. Um, I think, um, I suppose, exca- excavating these kind of very specific histories is useful, has has the kind of relevance for like a wider uh, anti-fascist view of history or anti-fascist view of, of politics as well. Um, the book is about um, what you kind of term the Jewish anti-fascist left of the 1940s and 50s. How would you characterize this, I was going to say movement, but it's more a community as well, I suppose. You've got some like individual newspapers and other stuff. Um, so how would you characterize it and what differed it from other established Jewish communities in Australia? Yes, very good question. Uh, so, yeah, the book is about, it mostly centres on the Jewish anti-fascist left in Australia and in particular in Melbourne and Sydney. And uh, it's a, it's mostly focusing on the 1940s and 1950s. So the group that I focus on is, was called the... Jewish Council to Combat Fascism and Anti-Semitism, and it was established in 1942. And, of course, that was during World War II, and the broader context for it was a sort of Jewish anti-fascism that spread throughout Jewish communities worldwide at the time. And the context was basically a politics of the popular front so uh for you know from the uh mid to late 30s onwards the international left you know and centering on communist parties worldwide sort of had this shift in politics which uh you know away from uh what was called the third period uh sort of ultra leftism that you know social democrats were were class traders and that they were um uh you know f- that social fascists was the the general line to one that really saw that fascism was uh the biggest worldwide threat and uh it, that that was the politics of the popular front and it meant a sort of cross class uh defense of a broader project of defense of democracy uh, and I guess an opening up of a sort of uh, ideological pluralism to a certain extent uh, on the left. And of course, there were, you know, there's the, you can make your criticisms of, of, of the Popular Front in terms of it ended up being uh, sympathetic with 
you know, imperial imperialism to a certain extent, and uh, you know, it sort of it meant that the left had to swallow uh, criticisms of uh, Western democracies. But in the context of uh, Jewish left politics worldwide, what it meant was that, uh, particularly so in the Soviet Union, there was an and the main organization there was called the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. So it was set up by Stalin in 41-42, along with these other major anti-fascist committees that were basically, their job was to raise anti-fascist consciousness and support for the Soviet Union's uh, fight against the Nazis uh, worldwide. So there's both sort of a propaganda effort, but also, you know, very materially in terms of raising... um, aid and materials from abroad. So the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee had these uh, very prominent writers and artists and performers in the Soviet Union, and they essentially developed this ideology of Jewish anti-fascism, which was about that Jewish liberation comes from this broader participation in social struggle. But importantly, in the Soviet Union, they had a this philosophy you might have heard of, which is a uh, uh, national informed socialist in, in content. So the mm-hmm. only sort of allowable form of Jewish difference was meant to be linguistic. So it was that, uh, you know, Yiddish was okay. And that was, well, it was okay, at least temporarily. And it was sort of a valid way that people were going to express themselves. But it was meant to the content of official Yiddish culture was meant to be communist or socialist. Um, But when the Jewish anti-fascist committee came around, suddenly the the content could could be Jewish Um, and you were allowed to reference Jewish religion. You were allowed to um, have this broader idea that Jewish culture itself uh, could be a weapon against fascism, that Jewishness Jewishness was actually important and valid. so this was, yeah, an ideology that was taken on by Jewish communities around the world. And in uh, Australia, um, embodied in the Jewish Council to Combat Fascism and Anti-Semitism, in fact, it was, um, for a time, the dominant ideology amongst Jewish communities in um, Australia. So for a short period, the Jewish Council... Um, you know, ran this very effective sort of propaganda outfit. It was extremely active. It was very motivated. And, you know, they were pro-Soviet, but so was when when the Soviet Union entered um, the war, you know, so was a lot. It was mainstream to be pro-Soviet because they were Australia's allies, UK's allies, etc. So, um, yeah, this space was opened up where they could actually take this leading role within the community. So, yeah, this is sort of a history that's not really known or talked about uh, very much in Jewish communities in Australia today. But, yeah, that's kind of what the project of, of the, the, my research was, was really to uncover this sort of rich history and looking at that organisation, the Jewish Council, but also looking at some of their magazines and newspapers and really trying to understand exactly what... Um, their ideas were and what the context was. Yeah, I suppose 
um, as historians, we, we can't be, you know, like having the weight of future history. I mean, not future history, the weight of what of the present, like kind of inform our understanding. You know, for us today, it would sound kind of bizarre for like everyone to be pro-Soviet. But of course, we haven't. The Cold War hasn't kicked off. You know, there isn't this massive, you know, kind of showdown between two superpowers, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a kind of a, although there is a lot of, I suppose, there was a lot of a kind of anti-communist um, feeling in, in the build-up in the interwar period, this kind of very conveniently gets kind of washed away um, with the with the kind of necessity of, of forming allies in the war as well. So yeah. I do find that super interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, there was, you know, official street parades and stuff in Australia celebrating, you know, the Soviet Union and, you know... Um, uh, uh, hammers and sickles everywhere and yeah which seems completely crazy and alien um that would have been it and, and it was you know um a few just you know a few years later but it was um yeah. quite normal at the time uh, you make a, a real a point right at the start of the book that yours is a partisan history and i just wondered what what you meant by that yeah very good question i mean so my political background is really in the Jewish left. So um, I have been active in Jewish left organisations for the last decade or so of my life. I, um, for a time, about 10 years ago, I became a community organiser for this organisation called the Australian Jewish Democratic Society. And I did that for about three years. And I... It was a small, very small, in the context of things, Jewish left organisation, and um, I guess you could say a bit uh, anomalous within the sort of the mainstream politics of uh, Melbourne's Jewish community, which uh, I think it's changing a bit now, but but definitely back then extremely conservative, extremely Zionist, and I want and part of my I guess uh, activism with them was trying to understand the history of where this small Jewish left pocket came from because it seemed a bit out of nowhere. And then one of the things that I, I, I worked out, I um, read um, the, I talked to some of my family members and I read the biography, one of the central figures, uh, the autobiography, uh, a man called Norman Rothfield, uh, one of the central figures in the Australian Jewish Democratic Society. It turned out that he had been active in this organisation in the 40s and 50s and 60s called the Jewish Council to Combat Fascism and Anti-Semitism. And it turned out also that it was my that my grandfather was 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 very active. I didn't actually I knew that from I knew that to a certain extent, but I didn't know it until I really started uh, doing the research properly for for this um, this project. So that was a pretty interesting part of it. And, yeah, I guess the, the partisan history part is that, well, I just, I'm not the sort of historian is going to pretend that uh, I don't have political, strong political beliefs and that the, the, and sort of pretend that it's going to be a completely objective and detached history. The, the point of, of, of me trying to uh, research this history is precisely to, I guess, lo- understand the the Jewish left back then, but how it connects to my own Jewish left values now. 
and I guess to bring those ideas back to a current audience um, and to say, you know, it's not just a historical curio, actually, there are all these really interesting ideas that can tell us a lot about uh, an anti-fascist or, or Jewish politics today. So that really informs the whole gamut of the the research project is 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 this sort of uh, my bias, I suppose you'd put it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think any any claim to unbias or like neutrality is is <laughs> funny enough laden with bias and and tends towards a particular reading of history or a particular analysis of history anyway. So yes, I feel you know we we when we write when we were writing we writing the history sections of our book we were of course were like we can't we can't divest ourselves from the work we're doing like this is I think it's I think for anyone to claim otherwise is kind of outdated now even you know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but you'd be surprised. I mean, I, I, um, you know, I, I, I studied at University of Melbourne, and the the history department there is sort of changing a little bit now. But it's a lot of the a lot of the history that gets written still in mainstream institutions is is uh, yeah, is is still still conservative and still written, still written in that sort of style. Like I'm going to gather up all the facts and then I'm going to present them to you. And here's my argument. Um, you know, it's 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 exactly sometimes missing those greater power dynamics uh, that understand exactly what what history is doing or what the project of history can do, both as a conservative force, sort of reinforcing the status quo, or trying to you know turn turn something on its head and 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 question. Uh, the stories that we tell ourselves that 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 about history that constitute um, sort of the ideology of the present. So a big section of the book, um, and it basically runs through a lot all, all of the book, is this this idea of Holocaust memorialization or memorialization of this massive atrocity. And I think just going back to what we were saying about before about the Soviet Union, like you know the Holocaust uh, in the time you're writing is not you know it's not like this kind of memorialized thing that has these rituals attached to it necessarily of 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 you know yearly remembrances and and retellings and and new stories being brought forth and you know the pre- preservation of 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 different sites of different concentration camps where 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 it happened and um, you know broader in broader society as well you know this is like an a, an immediate trauma that um jewish migrants coming to australia have with them you know many of them are uh i mean i'll, I'll Almost all of them, I suppose. I don't know. Maybe you can correct me. Are, are survivors of this of this atrocity, you know, carrying that with them, um, and so it's it's quite difficult to I think to for us to kind of untangle that. I think how how do you think how do you think this this kind of immediate memory of the Holocaust, immediate memory of this 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 trauma, shapes the actions of this Jewish anti-fascist left? Yeah. Um, very good question. Yeah, as you say, it's actually one of the probably interesting things that characterizes uh, Australian Jewish communities and particularly Melbourne Jewish community um, compared to other Jewish communities around the world is the extremely high proportion of the community that's that are Holocaust well that are, uh that were Holocaust survivors and now the descendants of Holocaust survivors. 
So it basically, uh, the migration of refugees from Germany and Austria sort of in the late 30s and the Holocaust survivors who came afterwards in the the uh, in the 40s and 50s, it basically doubled the Jewish community um, in, in, in Australia. So it, it transformed every single aspect of, of, of the community and, and, and how it functioned. And yeah, up until today, it's, it's a Holocaust memory is uh, really central to um, Australian Jewish culture and, um, and, and memory and sort of everything. So it's, it, it's, so, I mean, the thing is that even though that's the case, there has not really been much written on Holocaust memory in Australia. Um, it's starting to change a little bit now, but sort of the major um, history sort of tells the story as if, well, you know, it, it, the that the Holocaust didn't become this central feature of Jew- despite despite there being this high proportion of of Holocaust survivors, the Holocaust did not become this central sort of uh, have this central place within Jewish communal life until seventies or eighties, and that's when sort of these um you know institutions like the Holocaust Museum were were developed, and this is um this is sort of like a historiogra- historiographical model of the of the <laughs> of holocaust memory that um was really common up until about uh 20 years ago um uh, across um that basically there was this idea that holocaust survivors were too traumatized they didn't speak about it um there there was this great and and jewish communities didn't want to talk about it and that there was this great silence and that it was only sort of, you know, political developments and, and developments around memory culture, et cetera, later on in the 70s and 80s and other things going on like, you know, geopolitical things um, that meant that Holocaust memory could finally be uh, articulated. And this serves a um, great book by a U.S. historian called Hasiadina who basically completely overturned this idea. She went back and she focused on the United States and went back and looked at all the the archives and thought, well, no, this it's just not true at all. Like the whole Jewish communities always talked about the the Holocaust in different but it, but I guess the thing is it was in a different way to the way that we think about the Holocaust now. So I guess so what I found in Australia was that their Holocaust memory was definitely the Holocaust was definitely talked about. You open up any issue of the the Australian Jewish news throughout the forties and fifties, always talking about the Holocaust, always talking about Nazis, always talking about post war Germany, um and any other, you know, Jewish publication uh was doing the same thing. But it was precisely in this anti-fascist mode um, for a lot of a lot for a lot of that period that the Holocaust was not this event that we think about now, which was this discrete event which was finally over. 
um, and done and dusted. It was a past historical event. And, you know, now people who migrated to Australia, you know, could move on with their lives and become these, you know, great contributors to Australian society or British society or whatever the, the, the narrative went. Or the other narrative that people often have uh, is, well, the Holocaust was this terrible tragedy, but then out of it uh, was the birth of Israel, and that was this other redemptive moment. But in the Jewish anti-fascist understanding, there was no redemptive moment. There were only these political, historical significances. There was this ongoing project that they, they had to draw out. They had to try and understand um, well, what is what was fascism then? What is the danger of fascism now? How can we, you know, memorialize the victims of the Holocaust, understand, publicize what was happening, what happened in the Holocaust, um, but as part of this broader political project, uh, which ended up, yeah, in various cases being sympathetic to other oppressed groups. Uh, so. Yeah, so it's quite different mode of Holocaust memorialization. Um, within this kind of memory, uh, you write about how the the Warsaw Ghetto uprising becomes a, a point of particular focus. Why was this? Um, yeah, really good question. So th that was this, you know, very early on, as sort of almost as soon as the the Warsaw Ghetto uprising happened, uh, it started to become the practice of of memorial culture in, in Jewish communities worldwide. So, and yeah, like a, a jury, during the war as well as, as after the war. And it became, from, and it was for many years, this sort of central focus um, of having this annual commemoration and that happened in Jewish communities around the world. I think that the, the story of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was I guess it was one of such uh, heroism and such, uh, in some ways, you know, it's an unlikely story of heroism. And it was, it was, there was relatively a lot known about it. There was, it was relatively well publicized as opposed to other revolts um, that happened throughout the ghettos and um, concentration camps during the Holocaust. So, uh, that was there, but it was this idea that you could have this sort of dignified, militant image of resistance that could uh, serve as this counterpoint to Jews as sort of a a victim. So there was this uh, one of the the writers uh, uh, who was pretty central to the Jewish anti-fascist left, Pincus Goldhart. Uh, it was a very famous Yiddish poet in Melbourne. He talks about that the Holocaust, rather than I think people now think like the the Holocaust. Oh well, there was this wave of uh, you know pity, and people were suddenly like, oh, anti-Semitism is uh, so horrific. We you know we have to um, uh, we we have to do everything we can to avoid it, and suddenly racism is um, that was maybe more uh, generally accepted becomes rejected um but you know it's just not it's just not the case at all and in fact the holocaust itself was um a cause of further anti-semitism 
So people had this idea that, you know, well, the Jews, they must have deserved it somehow, or, you know, just these sorts of ideas that um, somehow you have to ideologically justify uh, through further racialization what happened to Jewish people. So, so it was really important for Jewish communities to have this um, complete rejection of this idea that Jews were, um, you know, just helpless victims. So it was, it was uh, this idea that people could tie other forms of Holocaust memory to as well. That's one of the ideas is, uh, you know, that people have written about uh, Warsaw Ghetto Uprising is that it sort of took up all this space and that it stopped other memory from uh, being allowed to, to occur because we had to only have this propagandistic image of uh, the, the the Jewish sort of fighter, but that's wasn't that's not actually the case. So uh, in in the the research that I found, it was more that you could have this sort of uh, anti-fascist image of the the Jewish fighter, but that was sort of an entry point for this wider expression of Holocaust memory. Um, an understanding of what exactly happened in the Holocaust, of this publicization of a whole bunch of uh, other Holocaust survivor writing uh, that was going on at the time. Um, yeah, I'm interested because this, this book is obviously quite a, a, I suppose, a very specific history to a very specific place, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Australia. And yet he's also got a very internationalist outlook because, of course, the writers that you were discussing and the people you were discussing you know, have an international position. All of them are migrants and, and have views on what's going on in the world and like anyone else. So how do you, you know, how, how did the Jewish anti-fascist left um, kind of link issues of, of fascism and anti-Semitism with kind of other kind of international issues like that of colonialism? Could you go into that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a really interesting part of, what they were doing when they were memorializing the Holocaust was often making these comparisons with uh, post-war decolonization struggles. And it wasn't sort of in a vacuum that they just sort of invented these analogies by themselves. It was because that was part of the discourse of uh, the international decolonization movement itself was that they were drawing uh, all these, you know, uh, post-war anti-colonial intellectuals who would meet up in these international forums um, would, in fact, draw these connections with uh, the Holocaust. And then Jews and Jewish left who were there, uh, you know, used these sorts of opportunities to, um, yeah, to draw, draw exactly the same sorts of connections. And then... So it was particularly something that happened as uh, the Cold War heated up. So in um, the around 1950, uh, basically the that la- the you know as you were we were talking about earlier, the we sort of changed from this uh, popular front line. The Soviet Union was certainly no longer a, an ally. Uh, there was um, it was sort of very real prospects of uh, of uh, an actual war happening, 
Um, people didn't know it was only going to be a, a, a cold war, um, as in uh, as a as in direct confrontation between Soviet Union and uh, and the United States and its allies. So it basically initiated this worldwide change within left politics towards a more critical approach to Western democracies and and their and their and their politics. So, and the main line, well, one of the main lines um, was this criticism of imperialism and racism in line with these international decolonization movements. So that's something that was definitely taken up um, by the Jewish left uh, in their propaganda. And it was sort of linking up with, you know, local, um, how that, how that played out in Australian politics as well. So probably one of the central decolonization struggles that's had ramifications through Australian politics was um, the Indonesian independence struggle. There was a ban on uh, Dutch shipping um, in, in like a solidarity strike that was um, initiated by um, Australian maritime unions. And so it became a, a, a huge, a huge political issue and one that, the Jewish left in Australia was engaged through those left connections, but also at the same time having this broader international context of um, this sort of uh, communist and decolonial politics drawing, drawing these connections and trying to have this more expansive version of an anti-racist, anti-fascist politics that would also be talking about colonialism and imperialism. Yeah, there's a absolutely... Um, a really interesting example you you cite of of one of I can't remember the name of the writer, but talking making links between fascism and and apartheid South Africa that was just you know established there and how it's such an interesting because obviously drawing those parallels can be a, a fraught activity, but it's such an interesting kind of uh, a, a really useful uh, I think um, a useful way of 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 drawing these links between these different different things as well. Yeah, one of the main sort of uh, inspirations, I guess, for this sort of lens is um, a book by Michael Rothberg. Um, it's an American um, historian, cultural historian, called Multidirectional Memory. Yeah. And that's precisely his point, is that multidirectional memory um, is this uh, way of looking at memory that rather than sort of there being these competing um, oppressions or competing uh, attentions or memorializations, that looking at um, memorializing one genocide or form of oppression um, in different ways actually opens up this space for more memory and the memories can talk to each other and inform each other. And, and, and so it's not, yeah, exactly. I totally agree with you. There's no... Uh, sometimes there's not that much to gain by saying, "Oh well, apartheid is the Holocaust" or something like that. Like you, it's it's almost pointless. But that wasn't the it wasn't exact it wasn't the intention of what they were doing when they were creating these forms of memorial memory to say to sort of directly. Uh, uh, say that they're the same thing or that they have the same history or that, uh, 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 you know, it was it was about solidarity between between the two struggles and a sort of more common transnational political analysis 
that said, oh, well, these aren't just like these discrete instances of bad people doing bad things in the world. Actually, there's, you know, colonialism, racism and imperialism as international um, systems and uh, ideas of um, and ways of uh, treating people that is sort of the common the common thread. Yeah. So, you know, Australia is a, it, it differs from the UK in that it's, you know, a settler colonial state. I mean, when I say it differs from the UK, UK, uh, you know, obviously the UK is heavily involved in Australia's founding and, you know, the creation of that, of, of that settler colonial state. But in any case, it's founded on the theft of, of indigenous land and, and the, you know, continued indefinite of indigenous peoples in Australia. And so, you know, I suppose it's a more broader question, but migrants coming into that situation, especially Jewish migrants fleeing the Holocaust, come in in a, in a kind of an almost an unsettled position within Australian society. How you know how was how 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 were they positioned within Australian society, uh, and how was that this kind of thought about by by Jewish anti-fascism? Yeah. Very good question, and that's, um, I mean, sort of the starting point of the whole history was this understanding of, well, what, what is the, if you're having sort of this uh, uh, critical race or anti-racist um, focus on the history of Australia, you can't really understand the history of say anti-semitism without understanding this broader history of race in australia and without understanding that the primary determinant of the racial order in australia is as you say um the uh dispossession of indigenous people in order to take the land um and attempt to replace indigenous people on their land with settlers that's the the whole project of settler colonialism in australia so my sort of, I guess, theoretical positioning is to uh, was influenced by the late Patrick Wolf, and that was to understand that uh, really the people. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different historical debates around this, but there's a, a lot to be gained actually from viewing settlers and indigenous people as as a binary. So. If you're not indigenous, you are in some ways, whether you like it or not, whether you will it or not, part of this colonizing project um, in Australia or, or in other um, settler colonies. So that's kind of the starting point is saying, well, you know, Jews did face anti-Semitism, Jews did face racism in Australia, but they were still like it or not, part of this project of set ongoing project of settlement of Australia, an ongoing project of colonization in Australia. So how did the Jewish anti-fascist left understand that? And it's a sort of a slightly unsatisfying answer in that there was certainly a lot of, there were a lot of sort of nascent links around that post-war period where the um, for various reasons Aboriginal activism really took off 
um, and started making um, major strides um, and winning a lot of non-Indigenous allies, um, including very centrally from from the left and from um, the Communist Party of Australia and, and its sort of you know surrounding fellow travellers. And uh, part of that was the, the the Jewish Council, people associated with the Jewish Council and Jewish anti-fascists. But unlike uh, somewhere like uh, the US, where there was this you know really strong history of Jewish solidarity with um, civil rights struggles, it's not really a feature of Australian Jewish history. Uh, a major feature, of course. There's different um, individuals and. Um, sort of smaller examples, and and it's probably and it's I would say it's changing now, but um, for most part of the the twentieth century, there was no real organised Jewish community solidarity with um, Aboriginal people. But in the and that sort and basically that ex- extended to to the Jewish anti-fascist left as well. But they did they were certainly starting to think about it very seriously in the late 40s and early 50s because of these uh, decolonial ideas and international decolonization because of this sort of more critical turn to an analysis of Western democracies that um, was uh, very concerned with racism and imperialism and because of the the strength of Aboriginal activism, which was really starting, um, which really was kicking off in various ways at the time. So it made an impact on consciousness of Jewish anti-fascists and they were expressing it through uh, their writing and some of the, the cultural works of the, the, the period. So I look at um, some of the works of a um, very famous Jewish writer, Australian writer called Judah Watton and a famous uh, painter called Jossel Bergner. So they both were involved in various ways of depicting the struggle of Aboriginal people and trying to understand it in connection with uh, anti-Semitism and with uh, uh, Jewish, yeah, with Jewish with Jewish oppression. So, what was the commonalities? What were the differences? And how were Jews positioned? in relation to both anti-Semitism and settler colonialism. So, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's it's fairly complicated, but let's just say that there was a few different versions of it. One was to say, well, uh, one was more, uh, let's say, naive or maybe reproducing some of the then racist ideas around um, Australian cultural nationalism of the time um, that were that sort of ha- itself had this really uh, it was a it was, so it was this left uh, cultural project that was sort of happening around the same time which was Australian cultural nationalism sort of this revival of this folk movement um, and um, you know, kind of this uh, way of separating ourselves from from the empire to a certain extent, but it was it was it was nationalist, and uh, that and the cultural nationalists had this very complicated relationship with Aboriginal struggles. At one, you know, it was sort of part of it was about set 
celebrating this sort of settler myth of the bushman out in the country being independent and rugged and egalitarian to the exclusion of Aboriginal people or, you know, or papering over the dispossession of Aboriginal people. Part of it was about, uh, the other part of it was about maybe the, the telling these stories of ordinary people um, and Australian folk culture sort of open this space for other voices, including Jewish voices and including opening up a possibility of um, anti-racist struggle with Aboriginal people. And there were Aboriginal people who were involved in um, some of these Australian cultural nationalist sort of left institutions at the time, like the the, the new theatre movement. So it's a, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a complicated dynamic that they were try, trying to understand uh yeah um yeah so i suppose finishing up um you know we we talked about past and history before and how we can't divest ourselves from those histories what what do you think and it's obviously a danger to try and draw discrete lessons that we can apply to our present situation from from the history we're writing but um you know what resonances do you think you know, this history has for, you know, not just the Jewish left, but the left, I suppose, anti-fascists around the world today. Is there one? Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah, great question. I think that what I was also trying to work out is, you know, this, obviously this is a little bit of a tension within me and my own experience, which is like I'm sort of, you know, leftist universalist and, uh, you know, uh, believe in this sort of uh, wider social change and, you know, the uh, gen- a sort of uh, more generalised idea of um, that, you know, class struggle is what's going to transform society. But also I have this more particular uh, um, investment in a Jewish politics um, and Jewish ideas and Jewish culture. So what's the connection between the two? And I think that, and or, or how can you marry them up or can you even marry them up? And I think that that is really sort of the underlying project and it's one that uh, I think different racialized groups within anti-fascist um, or within broader movements for social change have been facing for a very, very long time. Um, and it's still one that I think is centrally confronts um, anti-fascist and progressive movements today is what is, you know, there's a whole bunch of ways of talking about this and people sometimes are very dismissive of identity, what people, what they call identity politics. So my kind of, uh, this history, I hope kind of speaks to how you can understand identity in a bit of a sort of non-identitarian sort of mode. So the Jewish anti-fascist left wanted to, they saw it that in order to fight anti-Semitism, you have to, you can't just say, oh, well, anti-Semitism is just another, is a racism and, you know, the general revolution, once the revolution comes, you know, that these ideas will will vanish or they'll be no longer relevant and that's what we have to focus on. They said, no, you, to, 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 if you're, this is a famous quote from Hannah Arendt, which is one of my um, epigraphs. If you're attacked as a Jew, you have to respond as a Jew. 
um, or you have to fight back as a Jew. Um, and I think that that's still Im- very important for anti-racist struggles today. But you've also got to have this way of relating to the wider movement and relating to other oppressed people. So, so I hope that what I've done to a certain extent in this book is present a past political framework um, and set of political and cultural ideas for how this Jewish anti-fascist left, in fact, understood their struggle against anti-Semitism as the only possible to, way to defeat anti-Semitism was through this wider struggle against racism and through a sort of wider progressive um, struggle against imperialism and colonialism and capitalism more generally. Great. That seems like a really good place to, to leave it. Uh, the book is called Jewish Antifascism and the False Promise of Settler Colonialism by Max Kaiser. And you can get it from, I suppose, you can order it from shops. It's like a Palgrave book. So it's, um, yeah, you can probably get it through their website too. Have you got anything else you'd like to, to like highlight or plug while we're... I was just going to say it's... Ex- yeah, go on. Well, yeah, I was just going to say it's extremely expensive. Yes, so I didn't... I, I, did, so, I was kind of trying so to... So I don't expect that many... <laughs> I was trying to dance around that a little bit, but, you know... <laughs> yeah. No, so so I was going to say, like, if you have access to an insti- through your institution, through university library, that's sort of the best way to get it, either in hard copy or... Uh, um, you can download the the ebook. So basically, all university libraries should um, have uh, at least an electronic copy of it. But if you don't have institutional access, I am on Twitter and I do have an email address. And I'm extremely happy to send anyone who wants a copy a PDF. Don't tell Palgrave, but um, <laughs> <laughs> you can have a free PDF on me. So um, yeah, just you, know, you can Google me and find my my Twitter and my email address um is k-a-i-s-e-r-m uh at unimelb.edu.au so u-n-i-m-e-l-b.edu.au great and yeah if there's any like articles you've done or anything we'll we'll put the links in the in the in the bio so we can you know people can get a a taste of the book as well I, i don't know if there are but yeah, yeah. There's, I've got a, there's a, I've got a kind of a free. There's an article that's available for great, um, open access. That's probably a good one about Jewish anti-fascism. Great, that people can. I will out. link that in in the bio. Okay, thank you very much, Max. Thank you, Alex. Join us for KiteLine, a weekly radio program on Channel Zero Network that focuses on issues in the prison system. With over 50 episodes already released, you can hear informative and riveting stories about the impact of prisons on people both inside and outside of the prison walls and how they fight back. KiteLine is intended as means of communication between people across prison walls. Our goal at KiteLine is to amplify the voices of those within the prison system while encouraging dialogue with those on the outside. Hear us on the Channel Zero network and visit our website for more information or previous episodes at kitelineradio.noblogs.org.